Let's pray together. Oh God, we know that you're present here this evening in the fullness of who you are, your extravagant character. And we pray, Lord, that you might reveal yourself because unless you do that work, we won't see you. But we take heart because you've called us here. And because of your past faithfulness. And for that, we'll thank you in advance for what you'll do tonight as we continue to be in your presence now through your word. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being gossiped about or falsely accused, uh, judged in an uncharitable way. I'm guessing most of you have. And uh, if that's the case, you might relate with the feelings of someone who describes the impact their experience of being judged falsely had on them. When you're accused of an act you didn't do, you inevitably experience shock, disorientation, confusion. You feel a sometimes dragging, sometimes crushing weight. The stress of keeping pace with normal life, of something as simple as responding to emails on time, becomes associated with the stress of defending yourself and can make, and can make you withdraw into the numb, stony silence of survival. You're hypersensitive to what people say, don't say, and how they say it. And there's always this thought, how can you reconcile with significant parts of society that abused your trust, your rights, your innocence, then tried to justify that abuse? The author of this psalm, David, certainly could resonate with those words. He could understand them. Uh, We don't know the circumstance that he faced, but we do know that he had been slandered, that he felt that he had been judged wrongly. He was the target of what we might call a smear campaign. And, uh, you know, many of you that work in politics here, you may know that personally, where uh, the boss you work for, the office you work for, the issue that you represent gets unfairly maligned and judged. It's very frustrating. We feel helpless. It stays in our head. We can't get it out of our head. David feels that. He feels it intensely, so intensely that he says, I feel like my soul has been torn apart. And when you feel weak, when you feel like, you know, you can't fix it, where all your defenses aren't working, and all the people that you try to tap to speak on your half aren't working, when you're convinced of your weakness, there's usually just one place you're going to go. You appeal to God. And that's what he does. He makes an appeal to the judge. Now, we have a love-hate relationship with judging, don't we? I mean, we love to judge other people. We hate when they judge us. Uh, But it's this thing that we struggle with, especially, I think, in our day. Our family just returned from a vacation, part of which was spent in Asheville, North Carolina. And if you've been there, you know it's a beautiful place. It's sort of a funky city. It uh, prides itself on being progressive. Uh, the loophole in the Bible Belt is one of the terms it's sometimes used. And we were going uh, rafting on one of the days, whitewater rafting, and our God was this really uh, wonderful early 20s gal 
who embodied that sort of thing. In fact, we were going down the river, and she said, the thing I love about this place, it's a judgment-free zone. Judgment-free zone. Now, there's part of me that just wants to go, yes, right? Just that phrase, judgment-free zone. It just feels so good. The problem is it doesn't exist on earth, right? Because we're so quick to judge. I even think in Asheville, by the fact that I got a parking ticket, means that it doesn't (laughs) exist, right? Any place. um, We're so quick to judge. I mean, you know, we, we judge the way someone dresses. We judge the way someone drives. We judge whether or not they're standing in the right line. Uh, on Saturday, I had to go to the hardware store, and in this particular hardware store, uh, Fragers, if you've been there, you know, they have a very particular line that you're supposed to stand in because there's not a lot of place, and so you stand in this line, and since I've been going there for years, I, lo- I know what line you stand in, and I'm in that line, and there's a woman who's not queued up in the right line, and of course, I'm like, oh, what, is she, what does she think she's doing, you know, she mu- or she must be new here. And then uh, one of the people that worked there came by me and said, enough so she could hear it, you're in the right line, she's in the wrong line. And I was like, yeah! You know, it was like vindication, you know? We're just judgy people. Maybe you're not like me. You know, we're, in fact, if you judge judgy people, you're judgy. You know, that's the irony about the whole thing, that we sit there and act as if, you know, these absolutes can be said when we violate them. No, to be sure, in the modern world, the unpardonable, unpardonable sin is to be judgmental. But we know that we fail. But it's not just a negative side of judging. There's a positive impulse that we have. You know, it's right that we're concerned about who occupies a judgeship, right? Who gets to the Supreme Court. These, there's reasons why there's debates about that, because we care about good judgment, We're waiting to see if a verdict is going to be fair. David cared about a good judge and justice, and so do you, and so do I. And as we are spending this summer through the book of Psalms looking at the character of God through the Psalms, I thought, well, let's spend an evening thinking about God as judge or the attribute of justice both understanding God as judge and living under God as judge. So in the time we have, let's look at those two things together. First of all, understanding God is judge. The Bible tells us that God is many things. God is Father, He's provider, He's friend, He's Savior. The Bible also says that God is a righteous judge. The prophet Daniel gives us really a high sensory view of this, a vivid image of this. Let me read it to you. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. All those indicate purity and holiness and righteousness. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Here we have this picture, an exalted picture of the court of heaven and the great judge on his throne. And while it's exalted and while it's great, it's not unfamiliar. 
because there's an earthly mirror of it, right? We see it all the time. If you've ever done jury duty or been in a court, please rise, the honorable so-and-so. We have this little reference point in our real life, and that means we need to be careful to dismiss. You know, for some time, some people mock the idea of God as judge. Dismiss it as a primitive idea, a scare tactic that was invented by the people that wrote the Bible. Or maybe you and I get offended, and we certainly do at times that God is a judge. But we can't uphold and affirm this idea of earthly judge and justice and not affirm a heavenly one. It's just not consistent. Both are true. But there is a little twist, something that's different. The English word judge typically means to condemn the guilty. And it's used that way in the Bible. But the way it's used more often in Scripture of God is the one who rescues the oppressed. The one who advocates on behalf of the innocent. That's what we find in the Scripture. And there's two different ways that we find it represented in Psalm 7. First of all, a righteous judge who feels our injustice. Verse 11 God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation. Now, it's become more popular these days, especially when a, a case has gotten a lot of press, maybe a particularly terrible crime, a crime where the defendant is just has no remorse at all, where they will play the video of the judge reading the sentence. Maybe you've seen some of these, right? And the judge throughout the trial, of course, needs to be impartial, but during that uh, reading of the sentence, he or she will let their moral indignation known. They'll read the sentence and talk to the, uh, the one that's judged directly. And if you're the victim, you're going to feel like, yeah, my judge understands how I feel. He understands what it's like, the offense I have felt. And it's only the Christian faith that teaches a God that can really say that in a way that we can understand it. Because it's in the Christian faith that the Son of God, the Lord who is the judge, actually gets framed. He gets arrested. He gets falsely accused. This is Jesus Christ. This is the passion of Jesus Christ. The one that actually feels. He knows what it's like. You know, the, the Christian faith, you know, someone I heard recently say, you know, you can compare this to seeing a statue of the Buddha. You know, often if you see the statue of the Buddha, he's very content. But what's the emblem of the Christian faith? It's a cross. It's where the Savior is wrenched in pain, where he's crucified, where he suffers a death that was not his. It's one that understands what it's like to be treated unjustly. But he doesn't just feel injustice, he's angry about it. That's what the word indignation means. It means righteous anger. That lie that was spread about you when you were in school, that damaged your reputation, caused people to make fun of you your entire, you know, junior year, that made God angry. The time that your parents accused you of something you didn't do, that makes God angry. The time your boss laid the blame of some failed project on you and they gave you a bad reference that followed you for a job or two, that made God angry. The time someone is wrongly convicted or arrested, that makes God angry. Righteous indignation. There is sinful anger and there is righteous anger. 
He feels anger on your behalf when you're maligned, when you're slandered. But unlike you and I that might have periodic experiences of that, the psalmist tells us that God experiences righteous anger every day because he sees it all. I mean, what a job this is. The times where I pick up the newspaper or hear something, I think, I don't think I can read another headline. I don't think I can take another story. And the Lord is persevering, right? Because he and his character sees it all. He feels it all. This is our God. Nothing passes his way. His righteous indignation doesn't give give in to compromise or despair. It's always righteous, but it will be there until he exercises judgment. So he feels justice. But second of all, he does more than feel. David expects that he's going to act. Awake, arise, act. These are the words that he uses. He's expecting God to show up. I was thinking about that scene in one of the Harry Potter films, Order of the Phoenix, where Harry is uh, brought into a disciplinary court. You know, he's brought into this court, uh, and it's filled with just all these judges in black robes and red robes because he's used underage magic to defend himself against two dementors. And there he is, and he's sitting in this chair. No one else is around him. Everybody's looking at him, and they begin to level accusation. And when he tries to speak, they cut him off. And when he tries to talk about his motives, they judge his motives. And he's just helpless there until someone walks in. If you know the movie, you know it's Dumbledore the headmaster, he walks in into that place where Harry is. And he begins to stand against the chamber of accusation. And he begins to offer defense and judgment. We have a picture of this in the, in the book of Zechariah, where, uh, you know, the high priest Joshua representing Israel is in that heavenly court. And he's filthy because he has the sins of Israel. And the accuser, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the one that levels slander, the source of slander and falsehood, the father of lies, is there accusing Israel, accusing God's people. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. This one I pulled out of the fire. They belong to me. Dress them in white robes. The Lord is the one that acts. In your uh, front page of your bulletin, I put a little uh, reflection material in there, and it's a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was written in the 17th century. And in, you know, in the Bible, you find that Christ, there's certain offices that Christ inhabits. He's the ultimate king, ultimate prophet, and the ultimate priest. But this question asks about him as a king, and it says, how does Christ execute the office of king? And this is the answer. I think it's really good. First of all, in subduing us to himself, meaning he conquers our hearts, our rebel selfish hearts, he rules and defends us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies— all his and our enemies. This is an amazing thing that happens. We were singing about it just earlier. When you get into a relationship with this God, when you're united to him through Christ by faith, God takes attacks on you very personally because you have his name, you have his promise, you're blood. You're more than blood. You belong to him. 
And why is it? Zechariah 2.8 has a wonderful verse that reminds us of this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. This is what the Lord says. If you touch one of my children, you touch the apple of my eye, the treasure, the one that belongs to me. Do you hear that? I mean, it's like the lover defending their lover, the parent defending their child, the best friend defending their friend. The Lord is that one. You know, I think the church in the West, we often, we miss this. In fact, modern people in the West tend to get offended by these passages. Maybe you felt offended. And it's because many of us, not all of us, but many of us have never been persecuted in the way that the persecuted church has been. And what strikes me about these men and women, their testimony, is on the one hand their grace and their love for their persecutors, but at the same time their boldness in saying, God, conquer our enemies, bring them to repentance, or deal with them. I think when we get confronted with evil face-to-face, we understand that. But there's a really important qualification I know that's popped into your mind, and you're thinking, isn't this the source of why we have, like, you know, innocent people getting blown up in marketplaces? You're my enemy, so you're God's enemy. They're not the same thing. We need to be very careful. Sometimes our enemies are not God's enemies, right? They're just someone we're mad at. God is the one that ultimately determines who the enemies are, and we only understand through his word. But there's two things this gives us before we move to the final point. One, when we understand this God who feels and acts, it actually leads you and I to withhold vengeance. This is the somewhat ironic thing about it. You know, people will say, this God of wrath, you know, know, this God of judgment, I hate him. I don't want, but the thing is, If you don't believe a higher person is going to advocate on your behalf, you are more prone to take vengeance in your own hand. It's when you understand that someone will deal with it that you can begin to step back. And Peter talks about this regarding Jesus and the way he was slandered and falsely accused. Listen to what he says. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Now listen to this. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is amazing. The Son of God, who is the judge, along with the Father and the Spirit, in his earthly life, while he had every reason and ground to bring vengeance down, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly and would vindicate him after he died through his resurrection. Even the Son of God had to wait for justice. If you're waiting for justice, you should be heartened by that. And he will not rest, God will not rest until justice is given on that final day. He himself bore in his sins the body on the tree that we might die to sin. You know, in this life, we get proximate justice. It may be that the person that slandered you or did you wrong, you'll get to see justice come to them. Maybe they'll come to you and repent. Maybe they'll be fired, you know. Um, But also, we all know that some of us, we will not see it. But the fact that you will not see it now doesn't mean that it won't occur. God has assured himself. And this is the second part of what we take, the confidence in God's promise. David 
says at the end, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing his praise. He has not received justice yet. He has not seen these people. He's still in the middle of the mix. He's still in the middle of the problem. He still doesn't know what's going to happen. There's a story in David's life where his very own flesh and blood, Absalom, his son, you know, stages a coup. He's been standing at the gate, and every time someone comes in, he whispers a little, whispers a little, his own flesh and blood. I mean, David doesn't know how things are going to land any more than maybe you know right now. But by faith, he so believes that God is going to be true to his character because how can God not be true to his character? This is a matter of God's name. This is a matter of God's character. It's even more about justice to you. It's about the justice of his name. And so in faith, David can say, I praise you. I give you thanks because you will bring me justice. I will see it in this life or afterward. But how do we, in close, live under this judge ourselves? Two things. One is self-examination. The other is repentance. Now, usually when people invoke God, the judge, against other people, they rarely have a sense of their own sin. You know, usually when people are invoking God against other people, they, you rarely see any self-examination on their behalf. I want you to notice that's not the case here. There's a wonderful balance and model before us here. On one hand, David is crying out, Oh God, judge my enemies. Come against those that want to threaten. And by the way, it's not just David's stuff here. David has a universal view of God's kingdom. It's not just my little world, but it's the world of righteousness. It's the justice. It's when you and I care just as much about the injustice that happens in the city as we do in our own life that we begin to mirror the kingdom of God. But David, notice what he says. He knows that the righteous judge will test righteousness. He says that in verse 9. But then in verse 3, he invites God to judge him. Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, maybe those were the accusations, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Mm. And he's basically saying, if I have been unrighteous, have it happened to me. I mean, that, that's self-examination, that's humility. You know, if you and I are going to invoke God to come against our enemies, we, we, we have to first stand before him ourselves and say, if there's any wicked way in me. And we have to understand this in an absolute and relative sense. I mean, when David says that he is righteous in this psalm, he's not meaning in an absolute sense like my complete life is always righteous. You can go to different psalms where he confesses his sin. But he's saying in this particular circumstance, Lord, I have been righteous in this particular time, in this accusation that's brought against me. So, in a sense, there is a capital R, uppercase righteousness, and that is being blameless before God and righteous in his sight, which is required if you hope to be in heaven, in God's court. But none of us live up to, as Romans says, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody here. All of us have fallen short of God's bar of justice. And this is the glory of the Christian gospel, where the Son of God comes and he takes your judgment so that you might be righteous before God, so that you can be capital R righteous in the presence of God. But there's also a small r righteous, and that's this relative righteous. You'll hear different people in the Bible. Zechariah was righteous. Abraham was righteous. What it means is in the character, the general character of their lives, they have righteously according to God's law. And this is what he talks about there. 
that he has lived that way, but it involves self-examination. Lastly, though, there is a call to repentance. As David says, if the wicked repents, that's not just a declaration, it's an opportunity. That God gives the wicked, the unjust, the opportunity to repent. Now, sometimes, you know, when someone's done us wrong, we don't want that to happen. We really don't want that day of their repentance to come. I mentioned the persecuted church, and it reminded me of a quote. This verse invites persecutors to repent and to be saved. It also reminds innocents to wish for their salvation, the persecutors, more than their condemnation. That's a challenge for you and I. Can I wish for someone's redemption more than their condemnation? That's the crucible God puts you and I in. But then he gives the wicked opportunity to repent. Actually, David gives us, you know, some, a wonderful, in a sense, I think he, he, he understands. I, when you read it, when I read it, I almost felt like David was giving reasons for the wicked to repent. Not just slamming them, but he was saying, think about this. One is everyone is going to stand before the presence of God. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. You are a person, and you will stand before a personal God. You were made by a personal God. But ultimately, the incentive we have is that sin, what he says here, see that sin is self-defeating. <laughs> it's self-defeating. I mean, any of us, you know, could probably give testimonies of say, I saw how this, I thought this would work out for me, and it turned to my head. David says that, right? He says, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. His mischief returns upon his head. The book of James says a similar thing when it says, listen, when anybody's tempted, don't let anybody say God is tempting you. God isn't tempted by evil, nor does he tempt people with evil. But rather, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The Bible is just flat out saying, don't you see how it works? Don't you see that when you were pulled in by selfish desire, Desire, whether it's ambition in your career, whether it's lust for someone else, whether it's money, whether it's envy, when you are pulled into that place and you are pregnant with that, it will lead to a birth that will lead to death. You know, as one songwriter says, after sleeping with the devil, we'd love to close the book, but then you've got to wonder how the baby's going to look, right? And so this is this call that David is saying, you know, see that and repent. But ultimately, the reason we get to repent can be found in another psalm and hinted at in this psalm, Psalm 51, where David commits adultery and facilitates a murder. How in the world can he repent? It's the mercy of God. It's what the book of Romans says, that God's kindness leads us to repentance the greatest motive you would have to repent tonight, if you have not turned to God yet, is his kindness to you and his commitment to be this God to you. So, in close, there is an irony about this psalm. In a sense, we read it a very exalted view of God as judge, the exalted judge. But the New Testament teaches the way that God exalts his son, the judge, is on the cross. That is Jesus' exaltation, in a sense. That's where it begins.
as he's crucified, the judge becomes judged. This week, when you feel tempted to be judgy, or when you feel despairing over the accusation that you keep hearing, you have a friend. He's God the judge. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the judge that you are. We thank you that you are uh, shadowed and hinted at in any good judge we've seen, but you are far different. I pray especially for any friend in this room who is suffering right now under slander, gossip, being maligned, and the pain they feel. I pray they would know that you feel it with them. I pray too, Lord, that you might bring any legitimate enemy to us to repentance, that they might reach out to you. But Lord, we also pray for those that will not repent, you will remove. That you will, for your own righteous sake, for the sake of justice and righteousness, work your judgment as you see fit. We know that you are persevering in mercy because you want more and more people to come to know you. We pray, O oh God, that that would run deep in our city before the final day. In Christ's name, amen.